I'm Michael Brennis, and this is the Showbiz Roundup. Zach Harris puts all the pieces together to build a celebrated career as a musician, composer, educator, and record label honcho. This year, the Zach Harris Group's fall outing brings this sextet of accomplished and sought-after Twin Cities and Twin Cities-associated musicians to select cities in the Midwest to celebrate the release of their new album, Small Wonders. Well, Zach Harris, thanks so much for being here today on the Showbiz Roundup. It's great to have you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um, let's talk about the band. Uh, first of all, um, we're familiar with Brandon Wozniak through his work with Dave King in the Dave King Trucking Company, among many other projects. Yeah. Um, of course, the Bates brothers, Chris and JT. I've known them since uh, their days in the Motion Poets. Um, they're very busy with countless projects. And then... Uh, John Raymond uh, on trumpet is from Golden Valley, just outside of Minneapolis, um, and is now the jazz trumpet professor at Indiana University. Um, mm-hmm. What's your connection to him especially, and then what can you tell us about each of the other members of the band, and, and um, how did you choose them to be in the quintet? Yeah, well, uh, as for John, you know, John grew up here. Uh, he's a few years younger than I am. Um, and was kind of making waves as a as a teenager even uh and college student on the trumpet here and the first time i played with john was back in i don't know maybe 2009 or something like that at uh the dakota is kind of one of the bigger jazz clubs here in the twin cities and they had a late night series and so we we had a project where it was kind of just a mishmash of different people put together and we did a few of those shows. So then John went out to New York and um, had a lot of success there. His band Real Feels with Galat Hexelman and Colin Stranahan and stuff. And, um, you know, he's put out a couple records on the same label that a lot of us Twin Cities folks are on, Shifting Paradigm, and have kind of continued to stay in touch with him. And when I decided to record this album uh, back in 2019, I knew that melody was kind of at the forefront of all the tunes that I had written um, and the concept that I wanted. And uh, John's got such a beautiful sound on both trumpet and especially on the flugelhorn. And I wanted to have that sound on there. And so asked him to be a part of it. Um, so, the, and, and he sounds, you know, tremendous on the record and the couple of dates that we've done, for the release show and a couple out of town things already this fall uh, have been really fun to be playing with him. So that's been great. Um, the rest of the band really started with uh, about that same time, actually, 2009. Uh, Brian Nichols, who is the the pianist in the band, just a really inventive, creative and uh, technically virtuosic player. Uh, he and Chris and JT Bates would play sometimes in trio. And I was always fascinated by how they could really kind of hint at that rhythm section of the Miles Davis 60s quintet uh, with Herbie and Ron and Tony. And and <laughs> I just thought to myself, man, I want to play with that kind of rhythm section. And um, not that the tunes I write really are like that, although some people say that some of the stuff I write has uh, hints of Wayne Shorter in it, which is really uh, an honor to hear. But um, I just wanted to play with that volatility that those guys have. Um, 
able to go from beautiful to monstrous, you know, in just a few bars. Um, and, and so we started out as a quartet. And when we did our first record in 2012, I wanted to have Brandon, uh, on saxophone on it. And I've played with Brandon since 2006 in a band called Atlantis Quartet. So that's kind of where the band all started. And um, sometimes it's a quartet, sometimes it's a quintet. And now for this record and uh, these shows, we're doing it as a sextet. And it's been really, really good time. Oh, so you're doing, are you doing the Madison show as a sextet? Yep. Awesome. That's awesome. It's great to have um, larger ensembles. You know, we've, with the way things have been, it's been, you know, duo, trio, maybe a quartet here and there. Everybody's sort of downsizing, but it's great to have uh, a bigger band coming. Yeah, I figured, you know, this is the sound that's on the record, and it's the sound I wanted to to kind of take out to other towns when we're, when we're trying to push this record. And, um, yeah, and it's really fun for me. Like, I oftentimes play trio, quartet, quintet sometimes and doing my own music with two horns and the piano it's like a real treat as a guitar player yeah yeah very classic um you talked a little bit about some of these other projects you you work with some of these other folks in uh atlantis quartet um jt's organ trio grain there's a bunch of other projects um what's different about this band in particular and how do you do you feel like you write differently for this group as opposed to some of the other original projects that you're in? Um, and what's your writing process like in terms of material for this group in particular? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, Atlantis Quartet is very much a collective uh, where all four of us are writing different things. Um, Pete, the drummer, Pete Hennig, um, and myself probably write the majority of the stuff, but uh, definitely everybody's contributing. And so there really is this kind of stew of compositional styles that come together in a collective sound because of that. And when I'm writing, sometimes early on in the tune, I'm like, this sounds like an Atlantis Quartet tune. Or I kind of know right away, like, I don't think this is, you know, uh, and oftentimes it comes down to, um, me wanting to kind of separate the melody, but make sure that the, there's a deep harmony there with the piano. Um, and so I, I would say that that's kind of the biggest difference between those two groups. Oftentimes in Atlantis quartet, uh, Brandon and I will play unison or harmony melody stuff and there won't be a whole lot of chords happening uh, on the heads or on the melodies. Um, but with this group, like harmony is really important to me. And, and really, like, even though I'm a chordal instrument, being able to pass it off to somebody who's so just harmonically brilliant like Brian is, um, is really fun to do. And then I get to function more as just like a horn, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and in terms of process, you know, uh, it really goes a lot of different ways for me. Sometimes I come up with a chord progression or an ostinato or or something, and and then kind of build the melody from that. And then sometimes it goes the other way around, where the melody is the first thing I come up with, and then I have to figure out how to support it harmonically. Um, so I I think in terms of process, the biggest thing for me is 
when I'm trying to write, trying to set aside some time every day to just do it because that's when I feel like I get the most done. Um, need those inspirational moments when something comes to me, but then to develop it, I have to kind of just keep at it for a while. Yeah. It always comes back to that sort of like the grit that it takes to take those ideas and uh, process them and flesh them out and, you know, turn them into something that people can perform. Yeah, I um I actually teach composition uh at one of the colleges around here. <laughs> I was talking to one of my students and and telling them to just start recording their ideas on their like voice memos on their phone or whatever. And uh, I have all of mine labeled with the word idea on there and I showed them <laughs> and I we counted it up and I've got like over 100 on there. <laughs> so, I just need to sit down and take that time to start kind of flushing them out. A little bit. Right. Yeah. right. Um, I want to ask you about the tour just a little bit. Um, is this kind of like an exploratory thing at this point? I, I notice you're sort of sticking closer to the Midwest. Um, are, are venues kind of back open full capacity? Do you have safety concerns? I mean, the Blue Stem shows in Dane County where we have the indoor mask mandate. Um, yeah. What do you think about all that at this point? Well, um, yeah, it, you know, when I started booking all of this, it was kind of in that glory period in June where, you know, like everything was going to be normal again. Um, pre Delta. Yeah. Uh, and I certainly have been concerned that, you know, something might get canceled or, or what have you, but the, the two out of town dates that we've done so far were at constellation in Chicago and, uh, the jazz estate in Milwaukee, both venues had a, uh, vaccine proof, uh, mandate for people to get in. Uh, and both venues felt really safe. Um, Constellation's been, been running up and running for a while. The jazz estate, we were, I think the second or third kind of like soft reopening night. And, uh, I think last weekend they, they finally like fully reopened. Um, and it was great. I mean, it was, it was sold out uh, there at the Jazz Estate, and it felt safe, despite it being you know pretty pretty close quarters there. Um, these other shows, you know, I don't know. Like we're going to Bloomington, Indiana. Uh, IU Indiana University was one of the first universities in the country, I think, to have a vaccine mandate for all of their students and faculty and staff and. Um, you know, we'll see. I, I feel comfortable about myself and the band's approach to safety. And, um, it seems like these shows are going to go off without a hitch and we'll just have to, you know, do what we feel safe with and hopefully other people as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I haven't heard a ton of negative reports in that realm. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's weird coming from Dane County where, you know the the masking and the and the vaccination rate is just through the roof. You know sure. in terms of the Midwest, and so it's a cultural shift, I think, in some cases. Yeah, but hopefully everything goes really well. Yeah, I I hope so, and you know I'm really looking forward to it. When um, when COVID first hit, one of my you know biggest self reflections was just how much I missed being out on the road, um, 
you know, in my 20s, I toured a lot and uh, throughout the years have been out uh, with Atlantis Quartet quite a bit and some other other projects. But over the last several years, you know, I have two young kids, um, as you can see on the album cover for this record. Uh, And um, just kind of decided to stay closer to home most of the time. But there's something just great about taking the music that you're making and giving it to a new audience, you know, and, and getting that energy from that fresh energy back from somebody different. And so it was really fun playing a couple nights we did, and I'm really looking forward to doing this and hopefully more as things continue to normalize. Yeah. Let's hope for that for sure. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Minneapolis scene. Um, I lived there in the early nineties and to me at that time I was coming from Boston. Um, it felt, a bit isolated from a jazz perspective. Anthony Cox had just moved back. Uh, there were a few name players in town. Gordy Johnson, Jack McDuff was living there. Um, Phil Hay was the drummer everybody called. The Dakota was happening at that time, uh, drawing national level artists. But it was 400 yeah. miles to Chicago, which to me is arguably like the center of Midwest jazz. You moved to Minneapolis in 2005. I think things were a bit different at that time. Um, when you moved from Southern Illinois to Minneapolis, what was the scene like for you when you arrived? And uh, what was it like in March, 2020? And what's it like now? Mm. Well, uh, yeah, when I first got here, it, it was really interesting because I had been um, in, I lived in Carbondale, Illinois for a number of years, went to school there, toured with like a, a jam band out of there for about four and a half years. And um, I had two weekly jazz gigs and then would be on the road three or four nights a week. Um, so I was basically like playing 250 to 300 <laughs> nights a year for several years there. And then that band stopped. Uh, I decided to finish my degree and my now wife and I moved up here to Minneapolis in 2005, like you said. And I went from being, you know, a... a bigger sized fish in a very small pond in this college town down there um, to move into the city. And I really didn't know where to start with getting into the scene, frankly. And uh, I decided to just kind of hole up and shed. And I really didn't do a lot of scoping things out at first. And uh, I, I kind of just started meeting people through other, other ways. Like I uh, started playing with these guys at this practice space and, Pete Hennig, the drummer in Atlantis Quartet, was like next door. And that's how I met him. And then he had just met Brandon, who had just moved to town. And um, so so it took me a while uh, to get into the scene. Something I tell my students now, I'm like, no, 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 you got to get right in there. Because I definitely should have done it quicker. Um, but there... There really has been a lot. It is a great scene here. Um, you know, the Fat Kid Wednesdays had the Clown Lounge thing going yeah. um, since the late 90s, I think. Um, and that series migrated to the Ice House when it opened up and, and the Clown Lounge had kind of shut down for a while. Um, you know, there's the Dave King stuff happening here. Um or out of here, I should say. And uh, 
you know, I don't know. There's there's a lot. What I will say, though, is that the Artist Quarter closed in 2014, the end of 2013, I think. And we have really kind of missed out on having like a full-time jazz club um, for the last few years. It, several years, I guess. Um, the way we've made up for it is by having various nights at certain places where, you know, like Saturday nights at this place called the Black Dog are are always jazz and have been for the last six years, maybe. Um, Monday nights continue to be a jazz thing or improvised music at the Ice House. And so it's spread out in that respect. And I would like for there to be a full-time jazz club here. Uh, I think that would make for... Um, that would really help improve the scene. That said, there's a lot of great players, a lot of great young players coming up. Um, we have a, a weekly jam session now uh, for the last couple of years, which we didn't have for a long time. Uh, that's run by the bassist Graydon Peterson. Um, and that's helped to kind of bring a lot of, a lot of folks together and, and, and more people meeting each other, which is great. Um, but in terms of the players, you know, it's been very, very strong. Uh, we've got the shifting paradigm is, is based here, kind of a collective of, um, a lot of us. And that's been really helpful to kind of keep music coming out of here and get it seen on a, you know, more national level, which has been great. So, um, yeah. And I mean, I guess that brings us to 2020 and then everything did shut down <laughs> and yeah. for, you know, whatever, 15 months, it was basically like doing some front yard concerts and, uh, and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And, um, yeah. which were great. And people really enjoyed those and were very generous and, um, you know, but now I would say that things are, are really kind of getting back to what they were just with more masks and, uh, you know, hopefully a lot of vaccinations. <laughs> right. I mean, you can, take your buddies and go back into the studio and be, you know, stuff that we weren't willing to do at the height of the pre-vaccinated pandemic, you know, Absolutely. so yeah, can keep moving forward in that way to some extent. Yeah. 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 Um, we've, we've mentioned shifting paradigm a couple of times here. I, I guess I learned recently about your involvement with shifting paradigm for those who are not familiar um, can you give us like the elevator pitch or the mission and concept of shifting paradigm? And then are you the owner, the CEO, sole proprietor? What's your role in shifting paradigm? Yeah. I mean, I basically, I basically deal with the brunt of the work. Um, it started as, uh, just a collective idea for, you know, um, a, a guy named Jeremy, uh, got everybody together here, all the not everybody, but a lot of the jazz musicians and kind of like as a brainstorming project for how to elevate the scene. And um, JT Bates and Brian Nichols and I were, we kind of had this thought of like, you know, a label would help do that. And so basically the idea is just to create a, um, an artist friendly label uh, that just helps make an umbrella of artists, which increases the visibility for all of us. Um, and it's expanded into the Midwest. We have, you know, John Christensen and Tony Barba from Madison, uh, Johannes Wallman, uh, lots of folks from Milwaukee, Chicago, uh, 
New York, Europe, Australia. So it's kind of just grown into this thing where, um, you know, in this day and age, if you're not in New York, it's hard to get on a major label uh, or even a ma you know major indie jazz label. And so this is a way to do it for a lot of other folks, you know, especially here in the Midwest. Yeah, I was talking to Johannes Wallman last night about this specifically. And I mean, he expressed sort of his amazement. It's not clear that you guys are making any money off of this. It seems like a fairly altruistic endeavor. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like you've built it into something where it's it's important to the jazz community, listeners and artists alike. And um, you've created a platform that's bringing music that might have languished unheard to a lot, to a much wider audience. And as you said, it's really expanding geographically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that really is the idea. I, I've always been somebody who believed in building community. You know, um, I was always part of a collective band and, and had that kind of ethos in terms of how things should operate. You know, it, it took me a long time to to say, okay, I'm going to do this band with my own name on it. Like I, like I'm doing now. Um, but, and I've, I, I hope that that's kind of what, um, what the label has brought to all of these other artists, you know, like strength in numbers. That's, that's the idea. Yeah. That's really something that attracted me to Minneapolis back in the day when I, when I was there was just this whole, um, collective concept, like, you know, you're a band, you form a band, you mm -hmm. work within the band to, you know, create a thing and, and, uh, go from there. Um, it's, it's not like, it doesn't have to be just an individual with a bunch of backing musicians. Yeah. I think Minneapolis is kind of unique in that way. Even going back to like, I don't know, stuff from my era, like the replacements and Husker Du, you know, that was just the ethos of Minneapolis and it's, and it's different than other places, I think. It it really is. And, you know, I think part of that might be some of the geographical isolation that we have, as you mentioned before. And um, there's also like a real kind of melding of the different scenes, you know, um, it's not just like I play straight ahead or I play free and improvised music or you know, I play modern jazz. It's like a lot of us kind of do all of those things um, and and have a genuine interest in all of those different things. And, and um, that, I think that is kind of the sound here is that, you know, there's a heavy streak of um, kind of the Ornette influence from bands like Happy Apple and Fat Kid Wednesdays, as I mentioned earlier. Um, and, and also like a fusing of, of indie rock into the music oftentimes. And, and that has just kind of permeated, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the scene, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, your adjunct faculty at Carleton college and Hamline university, I believe, um, you also run shifting paradigm, um, one of the things we're learning about on this podcast um, is how folks make careers in music. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's, uh, it's not easy, especially here in the U.S. 
Um, if it's not too invasive of a question, could you talk about how you make a living as a musician? Yeah, well, you're right. It is about kind of putting all of those different things together. And it, it's different for for everybody. Um, you know, JT doesn't do a lot of teaching. Uh, he just does a lot of playing, a lot of session work, and uh, a lot of touring. Um, for myself, I've always taught a lot, like privately for many years, and then um, and then now for the last several or ten years or so, maybe um, as adjunct at a couple of colleges. And um, there's something there's something nice, especially you know now that I have a family and uh, and don't want to be gone all the time, don't want to be out on the road all the time, uh, that I can, I can do that and have that as a source of income, but still also just playing, you know, doing some sessions here, uh, recording work and, um, and then playing many nights a week. Sometimes it's playing, you know, dinner jazz at a restaurant. And sometimes it's playing a concert where it's, you know, listening room tick, everybody's paying, uh, for tickets. So, versatility i think is um is an important aspect of making a living as a musician or artist in this day and age for sure um you know it's like diversification of your of your stock portfolio well you got to mm -hmm. diversify <laughs> your you know sources of revenue uh yeah. when you're when you're making a living as an artist well, Zach Harris, it's been a, a delight talking to you today. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Showbiz Roundup. We are really looking forward to seeing you here in Madison with your sextet. And uh, thanks again. This is great. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Look forward to it. That's it for another episode of the Showbiz Roundup. If you'd like more information about this show or any of the past or future shows presented by Blue Stem Jazz, you can head over to bluestemjazz.org. And you can follow my doings or be in touch via rattletickbuzz.com. Catch you later.